Let's ask the Lord to continue to, to glorify himself as we worship together through his word. Lord, with that refrain still echoing in this place, I pray that you would use our time gathered together now to increase our confidence in your ability to hold us fast. Lord, as we tackle a difficult text to process, I I pray that you would heighten our sensitivity to our own sin and increase our confidence in the ability of Jesus to save and to sanctify. So lead us, I ask, Father. I ask this through the power of the Spirit, confident in his presence among us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Holly Winter was scheduled to meet two college friends for a breakfast reunion at One World Trade Center in New York City the morning of September 11, 2001. At the very last minute, Holly's mom called telling her she was coming for a visit. Holly tried to talk her mom out of coming. But her mom said, I just feel like it's the right time to visit you. So eventually, Holly gave in and she canceled her plans with her friends. And instead, she went to another location and met with her mom. Holly's friends, however, kept their breakfast plans. And both of them were killed on that fateful day when the towers fell nearly 20 years ago. It was a seemingly small, insignificant decision. Do I keep pressing my mom on this issue? Do I cancel my plans with my friends that I've already made? Holly could have never known the full impact of that decision when she agreed to meet with her mom and cancel the plans with her friends. But every single day, Holly now lives in light of that decision. All of us have defining moments in our lives. Sometimes those defining moments are decisions that we make. At times we know the impact of that decision will be significant. Other times there's no way we could possibly know the full consequences of a particular decision and what that will be for us, whether good or bad. In today's passage, we see the power of God's plan unfolding in the lives of those who have chosen to follow Jesus. And in today's passage, we are reminded of the very real-life horror 
of a man who betrayed Jesus and the irreversible consequences of his infamous, his infamous sin against God. Judas was faced with a defining moment in his life and his decision to betray Jesus with a kiss will define him forever. Brothers and sisters, may the Holy Spirit awaken our hearts to the danger of sin this morning. And may he fill us with joy. And may he fill us with peace. And may he fill us with confidence in the ability of Jesus Christ to pardon our sin. Our passage this morning is from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. So hear the word of our crucified and risen and ascended king. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And so, Lord, would you lead us now, I ask in Jesus' 
name. Amen. So walking through the book of Acts, we'll come upon scene after narrative scene. As we, as we think through these different sections, we're going to need to attempt to discern what God wants us to understand in that particular section, what he wants us to see. One way we could describe the truth that we see revealed in today's section is like this, that God is so wise and powerful That his plans are accomplished whether people are devoted to what is right or disregarded. God is so wise and God is so powerful that his plans are accomplished whether people are devoted to what is right or devoted to what is wrong. But in order to digest that kind of blanket truth, let's break our passage down a little bit more easily. In verses 12 through 14, we'll look at the the people that are involved, not just in these opening few verses, but in, in our section. We'll look at the prophecy that's fulfilled in verses 15 through 20 that Peter was referencing. And then we'll look at God's providence displayed in the final section, verses 21 through 26, in, in a very simple in a very straightforward and in a remarkable way. Now, Luke describes the scene that's unfolding here, beginning in verse 12, in in such an understated way. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. But to remind us of the context, though, I want to go back to the end of Luke's gospel where he describes this exact same scene so that we can get a little taste to see how were they thinking and what were they doing and how were they feeling after seeing Jesus raise up into the clouds into glory. This is how Luke describes it at the end of his gospel. Then he, that is Jesus, led them as far as Bethany. So they're in Jerusalem. We already know that Bethany is about a Sabbath's journey away, and they go to the base of the Mount of Olivet where Bethany was located. And Jesus raised his hands to bless them, like Aaron would raise his hands to bless the people. Aaron, the priest of the people, the high priest of the people, and now Jesus as the true and ultimate high priest, raises his hands as his last act before he is taken into glory. And when he does, and he's carried up to heaven, Luke says they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Wouldn't you be? If you had just seen Jesus taken up into glory before your very eyes. Verses 13 and 14. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room and they were staying where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, not that Judas, but Judas the son of James. 
All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers or his siblings. So when when the followers of Jesus returned to Jerusalem, they were, sounds like, either in the temple praising God or at home where they were staying praying to God. Praising God and Praying with believers are two of the most powerful and wonderful and joyful privileges that we get as believers. It was awesome on this past Friday night when we got to get together in this room to pray together as believers. I loved it. I loved it because it was a very axe type of thing to do. We prayed for revival, we prayed for our nation, we prayed for our church. Simple, straightforward, unimaginably important for us as a body. We were devoted to prayer and we were praying with one accord. That is, we were praying in unity. So I would encourage you to join us. We're going to be praying on Friday nights at 6.30 p.m. in this room on the first Friday of every month going forward. Now, consider not who was gathered in this room at 6.30 on Friday night in 2020, but who was in that upper room devoted to prayer, praying in unity after the ascension 2,000 years ago. The 11 are gathered, perhaps as many as 120. Luke makes a point to say that that group included the women, as, as Luke refers to them. Maybe it was just the women who were a part of their fellowship, but it also may have been made up of some of the women that Luke references in some of his other writings. For example, in his gospel in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, he describes these women who were following Jesus along with the twelve. He said, these were women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Just think about that for a second. How awesome is the fact that the wife of the household manager of Herod was a follower of Jesus? And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Maybe this group also included Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who found the tomb empty and were the first witnesses to the resurrection itself. In any case, it is is powerful that in the first century, Luke honors these women by specifically mentioning their presence. In other words, they were valued and crucial members of this new covenant community. And in the first century, that was not the norm. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the siblings of Jesus are present. It is no small matter that Mary and the siblings of Jesus were present in this room praying with this small group of believers 
in Jesus. That is, people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. Luke, and Luke alone as a gospel writer, spends an inordinate amount of time on Mary, the mother of Jesus, in his first two chapters of his gospel. We have her beautiful prayer, beautiful song of faith. And after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the house of the Lord to have him dedicated, which is a pattern that we follow 2,000 years later, even as we did this morning. When they take Jesus, his parents marvel at the blessings that are pronounced over him. One man named Simeon speaks over Jesus, declaring that he, that is he himself, Simeon, can now depart in peace because his very own eyes have seen the salvation of Israel, the salvation that God has prepared in the presence of all people. Christianity did not occur in a corner, but in the presence of all. It was a public testimony to the greatness and the grace of God. And then Simeon looks directly at Mary and says, Behold, this child will be appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your heart also. Now, after Jesus was pierced, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, Mary, his mother, is gathered in the upper room with the others in prayer. And his brothers or his siblings are there. If you remember any of the accounts of his interactions with his brothers in particular, you know this is a miracle. In John 7... John basically describes a scenario where the brothers of Jesus are mocking his ministry. And John summarizes it by saying, not even his brothers believed in him. Or at the end of Mark 3, Jesus' family shows up at a house where Jesus is ministering to others and they try to get him to come outside, presumably to take him home. Either they were, were scared for his life or they just thought he was out of his mind. Being in the actual, immediate human family of God is no free pass to salvation. They were not born again. It is possible that the siblings of Jesus who are praying here in the upper room have only been believers in Jesus as Messiah for like a month. Even though they lived their whole lives with him. More than likely, they came to faith when Jesus appeared to many people after the resurrection. Maybe the brothers were a part of the 500 that he appeared to at one time that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about. Or maybe they were converted by the testimony of James, their older brother, whom Paul says Jesus appeared directly to. Can you imagine what that conversation looked like when he went home to talk to his brothers? You guys aren't going to believe who I just talked to. Jesus, our brother, is our Lord. 
What's incredible about all of this to me is that every person there, now devoted in prayer, in unity with one another, had details in their life, in their lives that were utterly unique. Every one of them at some point, at some point had a defining moment in their life. A point when they had to make a decision, a decision to believe Jesus and to follow him or or not, as the case may be. This group praying together made a decision to follow Jesus. The others mentioned in our passage are Barsabbas and Matthias. One of these two men will be defined by his role in replacing Judas as an apostle. But all of them are normal people. Assuming they had 21st century clothes on when When they were here, you wouldn't be able to tell them from anybody else if they were sitting among us today. Each of them had lives that were impacted by Jesus. So in their lives, along with the life of Judas, our truth becomes evident. God is so wise and so powerful that his plans are accomplished whether people are devoted to what is right or whether they disregard it. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, verse 15 and following, and the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So at some point before Pentecost, Peter stands up and expresses his biblical conviction as he's been praying that Judas must be replaced by another. In the words of King David from the Psalms, Peter sees a parallel between the man opposing King David, the Lord's anointed in the Psalms, And Judas, who is acting in opposition to Jesus, who is God's true anointed king. Peter references two passages. First, Psalm 69, 25. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. In this psalm, Peter sees what amounts to a a prophetic explanation of the ruin that came upon Judas at the end of his life precisely because he was opposed to the Lord's anointed, namely Jesus. But the details that Peter shares about Judas, which are hard for me to read every time, they they should cause us to shudder. Judas is the most infamous example of a betrayer in the history of the world. And rightly so, for he betrayed, he betrayed our Lord, his Lord, with a 
kiss, which is perhaps the ultimate expression of closeness or intimacy or fellowship. But what terrifies me about the situation, about Judas in particular, particular, is the way his heart, the way his heart worked to destroy him, despite the fact that he not only knew Jesus and served alongside Jesus, but he was close, personal friends with Jesus and the other apostles. He literally, he literally had a front row seat. He literally had a, had a backstage pass, witnessing the most incredible acts of compassion and demonstrations of God's power that the world had ever seen. Outwardly, Judas was indistinguishable from the other apostles. He looked and acted just like them. In Matthew's account of the Last Supper, when Jesus announces that one of the men gathered around him, around Jesus, will betray him. When he announces it, each of the men are grieved. And they begin to go around the table and say, Is it I, Lord? Is it possible that I I could betray you? To our point, they were so concerned about their own sin and whether or not they were the ones that might betray Jesus that none of the disciples jumped up and said, I know who it is. It's Judas. He's a scumbag. I've known this all the time. He's a traitor. I saw it coming. Actually, it's the complete opposite. Peter says he was numbered among us and he was allotted or given his share in this ministry. And yet, Judas, to use Luke's words, served as a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In other words, despite all the outward appearances, In his heart, Judas did not regard Jesus as holy. Jesus had not actually been, Judas had not actually been redeemed. His heart had not been born again. Judas had not experienced the new birth of the Spirit. Family, being the family member of Jesus is not a free pass. Being an apostle of Jesus is not a free pass. A supernatural work of the Spirit must happen in every human heart. Every person must be born again or you have no hope of salvation. Though Judas followed Jesus around everywhere, Judas Judas was not a true follower of Jesus. Let this be a startling warning to all of us. And I would say, given the necessity to make your your faith your own, I, I would say especially to our young people. Let this be a warning 
And also let this be a warning to those of us who are content to just kind of hang out at the church, spiritually speaking. Being close to others who know Jesus in a saving way will not keep you personally from falling away from Jesus in the end if your heart has not been born again. Just because your parents love Jesus or just because members of your family love Jesus or just because your spouse loves Jesus or just because you hang out with people who love Jesus does not mean that you personally love Jesus or that you yourself have been saved by him. Judas handed out baskets filled with fish and bread with his own hands, feeding thousands of people from just a few fish and and loaves. Judas literally helped with the miracles that demonstrated that Jesus was abundantly generous and that Jesus was capable of limitless provision for his people. And yet, in chapter 12 of his gospel, John tells us that because Judas was the one who kept the money bag, he used to help himself to the offering money. He would stick his hand in it. The money that was given to the apostles for their ministry. Did these comparatively small decisions to take out a little money here, a little money there for himself, did that harden Judas's heart, paving the way for his ultimate betrayal? Be warned. I'm saying these words in the context of a warning to you. You need to examine yourself to see if your heart is born again. Because some semblance of religious activity matters zero, ultimately, for your justification. The same self-justification that leads you to take small amounts of money from an offering, in Judas's case, is the same rationalization that eventually convinces you that it's somehow a good idea to sell out the Son of God himself for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was the most famous example of a person who was close to Jesus. Oh, so close to Jesus. He slept next to him. He ate meals alongside him. But by his actions demonstrated that he did not truly love Jesus. May his well-hidden deception be a wake-up call for all of us. Are there secret sins? Or are there persistent sins? in your life that reveal that perhaps you have not truly repented and trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, one day the consequences of that will be irreversible. 
now is the time. Or, if you're genuinely born again, are there subtle sins that are hardening your heart? Perhaps charting a course toward greater and more devastating sins. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is moving in such a way in your heart that you recognize this is me, may I encourage you, may I plead with you to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus even at this very moment. Unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God and you have no hope of salvation. So don't kid yourself. Just because you're hanging out with people who love Jesus doesn't mean you love Jesus. And if you're concerned about that, cry out to God now in repentance for the salvation of your soul. What if your heart condemns you now? What if hopelessness is enveloping you? There are two stories of betrayal in the New Testament. One ends in destruction. And one ends in glory. If you are in despair over the, what seems like the hopelessness of your battle against sin or the condition of your soul, consider that Peter himself, that is, the man who is referencing Judas's betrayal of Jesus in this scene, Peter himself once denied the Lord three times. When confronted by a young slave girl, Peter denied that he knew Jesus at all. For emphasis, the second time he cursed. The third time he denied Jesus, he called God's judgment upon himself if he were lying. When Jesus needed his friend the most, Peter denied any association with Jesus. And he betrayed him by completely abandoning him. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Peter's denial of Jesus and Judas's betrayal of Jesus? There is only one difference. Jesus himself. Peter repented of his sin and turned toward, he turned toward Jesus for mercy. And at the end of John's gospel, after the resurrection, Peter's in a boat fishing with his friends and and Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast. And from about 100 yards away, Peter recognizes that it's Jesus. And he doesn't wait for the boat to come in. He strips off his robe and dives into the water and swims to shore to get to Jesus as soon as he possibly can. And Jesus is gracious to him and restores him. He restores his ministry and says, Peter, feed my sheep. And he does so three times. Peter, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. I wonder when it dawned on Peter that there was one affirmation of his love for Jesus for every previous denial. Feed my sheep, Peter. The difference between the sin of these two men is Christ alone. Peter genuinely repented of his sin and turned outward, outside of himself, to Jesus for forgiveness. Judas regretted his decision but turned inward in self-loathing and became the literal means of his own destruction. That's the difference. Because all of us, at some level, have a heart of Judas. What makes the eternal difference is we may regret our sin too. But if you look inside for self-condemnation and think that will atone for your sin, you are wrong. There is one sacrifice for sin that is effective, and that is the blood of Jesus. You have to look outside of yourself to Jesus, repent before him, and put your trust fully in his work on the cross on your behalf. And if you do that, you will be saved. Judas hung himself, as recorded in Matthew 27, and then presumably fell into the field below where his blood was spilled out over the ground. It was in a field that was purchased by the chief priests with the money Judas had tossed into the temple. So it was Judas's money. It was Judas's purchase. They tried to absolve themselves from the guilt which fulfilled the prophecy from Zechariah 11, which is mentioned in Matthew 27. And that prophecy is listed under the book of the prophets, which at the time was commonly referred to as the scroll of Jeremiah, which is why Matthew references the prophecy or attributes it to Jeremiah. Now, in the second scriptural reference, the second psalm in our passage back in Acts 1, in Psalm 109.8, Peter sees a spiritual directive for what they must do, namely to replace Judas with another man. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, this scene from church history is just absolutely fascinating. In the first place, consider the providence of God. That is, what we might call the sovereign provision of God for His church. We know, as you read this, we know that there's at least two other people who were witnesses to every single thing that happened to Jesus from His baptism to His ascension. How many others were there? How fascinating is that to consider? 
But can you imagine being one of these two men? Almost undoubtedly, just kind of quietly observing things from behind the scenes. To potentially being elevated to the most important ministry position in the history of the church in an instant. In what amounts to a modern day flipping of a coin. Heads, you're an apostle. Tails, you're not. Think about what was riding on that decision. If Peter heard me say that, he would probably get right in my face and rebuke me and say, that is not what it was like at all. This was the holiest decision we ever made. We didn't want to contaminate it with our own thinking. And so we were left to entirely depend upon God. This reveals the magnitude of, of, of some decisions, of defining moments in our lives that could go one way or it could go another way. Imagine what hung in the balance for Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice, and for Matthias. As you think about these two men... Consider the spiritual readiness of your own heart for ministry. You know, a few minutes ago, we dedicated beautiful babies to the Lord. And one of the things that we did during that time was that we publicly covenanted together to point these children to Jesus. to teach them and instruct them, to encourage their parents, to exhort them towards the gospel and towards biblical truth. The truth of the matter is, in light of that public declaration and commitment to these families, there should never be a quarter that Metri ever has to ask for help. There should never be a quarter when she is looking for Sunday school teachers. If you love the gospel, if you want to declare the gospel, may I remind you that the highest proportion of unbelievers, when we gather together as a body, every single week is in the children's ministry. And unless they hear the gospel, unless the Spirit awakens their heart, they will not be saved. Oh, our prayer is that they will be saved. But if you have a desire to declare the gospel, text Metri. Call Metri as soon as we're done. If you want to make disciples of all nations, go to the growth group training so that you can shepherd a group of people. We have a training coming up in early December. Go! So that disciples might be made. I wonder how ready Matthias felt To be an apostle. Overwhelming to think about. But let's ask the same question of ourselves. What if God calls you to ministry now? In this church or in this community? Are you ready? The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few.
The apostles wanted to remove the human element of the decision that they were about to make that was going to impact the church. And they wanted to depend as entirely upon God as they could. So they cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. Providence displayed. The apostles had just asked Jesus in verse 6 if he would now restore the kingdom to Israel. That is, to the 12 tribes who make up one nation. Before Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit in fulfillment of the new covenant, it was important that the 12th apostle was selected. Just as the 12 tribes represented Israel under the old covenant, so too the 12 apostles formed the nucleus of the true spiritual Israel to whom the kingdom will be restored. So before the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost to empower them for the mission of the church, the 12th apostle needs to take his place. The story of these 12 and the early church history is the story that will unfold in the coming chapters of this book of Acts. We'll read about a story of a betrayer who forever will be defined by his regret. But there's another story that we heard about of a man whose sin against Jesus is defined by his repentance. The story in Acts will be a story about the church, that is the kingdom of God, defined by a God who is so powerful and so wise that his plans are accomplished whether people are devoted to do what is right or whether they disregard it. In the end, we are left to depend on the resurrected and ascended Christ. It is in Christ alone we put our hope because ultimately, brothers and sisters, all we have is Christ. But what a hope he is. Would you pray with me? Father, would you would you minister to us through the presence of your Holy Spirit? Spirit, I pray that the, the weight of the glory of your presence would be evident to us now. You are awesome. And you are holy. Increase our desire to be a holy people. And Lord, I pray that now you would give us tremendous confidence in the ability of Jesus to save our souls forever. And we ask these things now. In Jesus' name, amen.